Hello, TriLove listeners. This is Jason with a quick programming note. You might know the Trilon is shut down again in compliance with Minnesota regulations limiting the spread of COVID-19 as we head into wintertime. Uh, and that has pushed the slate of films back who knows how long. And so in the meantime, we're going to release episodes about the films that would be playing were the Trilon not shut down. Essentially, we're sticking to the schedule despite there being no schedule. When the Trilon reopens and the wheels get back on track, we'll figure something out. Just thought this intro might give some context as to why we're talking about the movies we're talking about. Thanks for listening. Hello, I'm John Waters, and I'm supposed to announce there is no smoking in this theater, which I think is one of the most ridiculous things I've ever heard of in my life. How can anyone sit through a length of a film, especially a European film, and not have a cigarette? But don't you wish you had one right now? Mm, 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 mm. And I'm telling you, smoke anyway. It gives ushers jobs. And if people didn't smoke, there would be no employment for the youth of today. So once again, no smoking in this theater. Aaron, before we start, is there like an unusual noise in your background or is that like your operating sound? Are you hearing like a... Yeah. Yeah. That is a radiator. Not sure there's anything. Give me one second. Let me go double no, check. No, no, no. It, it's okay. Still it works, for, it works for the episode, uh, you know, because that was kind of one of the main <laughs> ideas about this uh, particular... I'm surprised room. you can hear that. Yes, that is a radiator in my apartment that just does Ooh, that every once in a while. Very spooky. real... Real yeah, it reminds us all of how we're all alone. So mm, it really works, sorry. you know. I mean, because there was there was a lot of like ASMR ad- adapted from the radio play in this movie, so it, it's sort of an appropriate noise for this one. Wow! Save Did you notice that? Yeah, I kept noticing that about how like there were so many carriers over from the fact that this was a radio play where like uh, there would be like typing on the keyboard or there would be like dance music in the background and uh, or like like the sounds of a subway. And it was like, oh, this is like. They're literally just doing the exact same thing that they did in the radio play, but now it's on uh, in a movie. I didn't know that that it was a radio play when I went in, so I I didn't notice that at all. It just felt okay. overwritten to me. In, oh, it was ways. like but, extremely. It was like extremely the most direct adaptation imaginable to the yeah, point where yeah. it was absurd. It is straight absurd. Uh, you are listening, of course, to Try Love, um, a literal roundtable podcast where we talk about movies we saw or people we met at the Trilon Cinema in Minneapolis, Minnesota. You can find us on Twitter at Try Love Podcast. You can find them on Twitter at Trilon Cinema and go to Trilon.org for other ways to support the Trilon. My name is Jason Daphnis, and you can find me at Nintendoofus. I'm Cody Narvison, also known as the Invoice King, and you can find me on Twitter at Cody underscore BH. I'm Harry. I never try to rationalize my emotions, and you can find me on Twitter at Chitake Harry. Uh, I am, sorry, the wrong podcast host. Uh, I'm Aaron. You can find me on Twitter. I'm actually on hiatus, but you can find me on Twitter at RB Please. Uh, I'm accompanied uh, in this episode by the horrendous sounds of the radiator in my old-ass apartment. Which we used as the not-at-all-jarring way into this, this episode of the pod. Yes. Hey, we want to warm warm up to this. Uh, hey, good Aaron, one. Before we get really started, before we get before we get really started, your mic is more, excuse me. Your mic is now shriekingly loud. I don't know if it's gain up or something, but it's like real real clipping. The radiator is literally it's coming for him. It's like that scene radiator, in Home Alone. It's getting closer and closer behind you. Every time we cut back to you, the radiator is closer. It's like the end of the White House. Just 
Uh, yeah, give me, Ooh, give me, give me cool a second. References. A lot of good references being made. This a lot episode. of good references. Watching, watching notes. Give us one yeah. more, Cody. I've Get us. turned it down a little bit. Uh, there was probably uh, wasn't there like an evil appliance in the brave little uh, toaster? I was yeah, going to go with that one yeah, as the brave well. Pretty toaster. good. Yeah, he was. The evil appliance in Personal Shopper is the phone. Mm-hmm. Ooh, and in this yeah. movie as well. Another Ooh. way in. We did it. Hubba, Another hubba. way Holy in. Shit. Uh, is this just... our best episode? Already three minutes and nine seconds in. Uh, we'll roll with what you got, Aaron. I'll I'll even you out as we go. Uh, but today we're going to be talking about the 1948 Barbara Stanwyck and Burt Lancaster film. Sorry, wrong number. Aaron, do you have a summary for us? Indeed, I, I do. Uh, uh, no. Hello. Hello. I can hear you again. Oh, thank God. Okay. Uh, yes, I do have a summary. Have fun editing. Uh, yes, Sorry, Wrong Number, 1948, directed by Anatole Litvak. Uh, stars Barbara Stanwyck as Leona Stevenson, the sick and bedridden daughter of a wealthy pharmaceutical magnate. Uh, her husband, Henry, played by Burt Lancaster, is late coming home from work one night. Uh, he is vice president for Leona's father's business. Uh, when attempting to call his office to find his whereabouts, the operator seemingly puts Leona to the wrong number, where she overhears a plot to murder a woman that night as the 1115 train goes by uh, to obscure the sound. Maddened by this information and her inability to go look for help, she tries to get to the bottom of the murder plot and her husband's disappearance. Um, the screenplay for the film was written by Lucille Fletcher, who also wrote the popular radio play that the film was based off of. Uh, Barbara Stanwyck was nominated for the Academy Award for Best Actress, but lost to Jane Wyman for her role in Johnny Belinda. And most importantly, uh, clips from the film were used in the 2014 movie Jack Ryan Shadow Recruit, directed by Kenneth Branagh. Most importantly, you say? Directed by Kenneth Branagh, legend of stage and film. Fun fact, Kenneth Branagh is perhaps my sister, Charlie, shout outs to Charlie, her least favorite director, because in all of his films, one of his hallmarks is to use Dutch angles, and she just finds it to be the hackiest bullshit, and every time she watches a Kenneth Branagh movie, she points him out to me, and she's like, this fucking sucks. Um, Just a fun fact, Charlie really fucking hates Dutch angles, I guess. She just hated Thor. She really, really hated Thor specifically, which includes a ton of Dutch angles in the middle of that, like, desert town that he pops into where Dutch angles don't actually make like any sense from like a, a filmic narrative perspective. So she has a point, but uh, I digress. Damn man. Get her on the pod. Come on the pod. Come on the pod, Charlie. Uh, so it's a uh, noir. It's a uh, formerly radio play. And it feels like it in a lot of ways we were talking about just a second ago. I enjoyed this movie, but I don't know if I've had really the time to sit with it and sink or excuse me, let it sink in in a way that like, I can find much deeper meaning in. So I'm really hoping no, no pressure guys, but I'm really leaning on this podcast to clinch that, uh, uh, two and a half. What else is new? For me. Oh, <laughs> got him. That's mean. Uh, some of my notes that I covered while watching this movie are that there are a lot of, I think really fun. Um, I don't know if you call them establishing shots so much as just like tracking shots throughout the environments that these people are in while they're, uh, on the phone, which I think is, goes a long way toward building characters and sort of their uh, environments in a movie that isn't so much about setting as it is about conversations. Um, the uh, <laughs> I, I'll get into something way, way more specific later. Um, this is a very 
around maybe 45 minutes of this 89 minute movie in, I realized how impossible it was to really follow what was going on. And then I finally decided that it was because they were trying to make that feeling to instill that feeling in me, not because it was particularly bad at doing what it was doing. But I, uh, you know, maybe maybe my opinion changes. Um, it's very tightly wound, very, uh, very heavily scripted and just like wildly difficult to follow at times. But uh, ultimately, like, you know, feels like classic good good feel noir i guess like a fun piece of uh of of the time that it was released in um which is not a unique thing at all to this movie but i guess it just feels very much like uh i don't know that it that it it doesn't fall apart but at the same time i don't feel like i really i don't know if there's any much anything much special about this movie at least in my in my view but i'm eager to hear what the rest of the crew thought very cool, Jason. Um, yeah, I I think I really enjoyed stretches of this movie, but like Jason, I feel like I'm still working out exactly where I sit with it overall. Um, the initial energy I got from Sorry Wrong Number felt very rear windowy to me, um, and like the ambition of a movie to frame itself as a story coming out of the same room throughout the entire runtime was an idea I was really into because I've seen it done before and done well before um the aforementioned rear window being one um and i know the uh the tom hardy movie lock is kind of polarizing um but at the time i remember that being a version of that sort of story that i remember liking um and i guess i'm not convinced this movie was a failure in that quote-unquote attempt um but i do feel like i'm left having wanted more of a commitment from the movie if that makes sense like if you need to pull the, like pulling the story out of the bedroom is one thing, you know, around halfway through, we rarely spend any time there. Um, if you need to nestle flashbacks inside of flashbacks in order to tell your story, then maybe a different approach to that altogether would be better. Maybe that's, that's um, when I like really lost what was going on was when we went into a flashback within a flashback that's all being told on the phone that almost completely booted me from the movie. Right. Yeah. It, it gets, it gets tough for sure. Um, and like, not that I'm necessarily bummed that we like, pull ourselves away from Barbara Stanwyck. Um, as it's been said, I mean, she was great when she was on screen. She was nominated for an Oscar for this performance, which is really cool and probably deserved uh, for all I know. Um, and I say I'm not bummed that we spend time away from her because the trade-off is largely when we're not with her, we're with Burt Lancaster. And I guess not to show my hand for the noties too soon, but uh, that's two dynamic presences that this movie has. And honestly, as I try to work out what exactly didn't work for me, I can't really think of a performance here that didn't work for me um there are a bunch of solid character actors in this movie um and also the the camera work i thought was really good here and at times really great specifically at making a number of characters feel overwhelmed by either a severe lacking of space or a surplus of it um kind of what jason was gesturing to um or at but uh ultimately what i feel myself circling around is that uh, I don't know, this movie maybe got bogged down by itself a little too much. There are periods when it's very incredibly plot heavy, especially in the last like 15 or 20 minutes. And the final sequence, the very, very final sequence, I thought was some legitimately good and kind of frightening filmmaking that led to what I'm inferring is a sort of of the time nobody wins conclusion that you see come up in noir often. Um, and despite learning the entire history of our two leads dating back to when they first met, um, or their characters rather, I guess part of me felt like something was still missing to make that uh, resolution land in the way that I feel like it should have, or maybe what I wanted, um, or perhaps that thing was there the whole time, but I lost it amongst everything else. That's uh, a complete possibility. Uh, again, I'm still trying to work through my feelings on that. And uh, like Jason, I will uh, be leaning on this conversation hard to help resolve those feelings I have. And I'm optimistic that could happen, hopefully. 
Uh, yeah, I guess I had a somewhat different experience than you guys did because I just finished watching the movie not too long ago. Um, I didn't find it necessarily difficult to follow. Um, I My opinion and my experience with it was also mixed, I suppose. Um, we should point out that, uh, as Aaron said, um, it's based on um, a radio play by Lucille Fletcher. Orson Welles called it the greatest uh, radio script ever written, which is pretty cool. Um, I can totally see that. And it really, really defined my viewing experience of this movie. Um, it says it in the credits at the beginning of the movie. It's based on a radio play. It's written by the author of the radio play. Um, that really, really shows up in a lot of ways that really don't work for me. Um, I'm thinking about one scene in particular when they're describing the um, the former um, girlfriend from the small town, Sally Hunt Lord, I believe, um, who is Henry Stevenson, Burt Lancaster's character's former um, girlfriend from Grassville, his hometown. Um, she's describing this... Uh, this smuggling operation basically, or this, this illegal um, trafficking operation of stolen pharmaceuticals that, uh, that Burt Lancaster's character, Stevenson and some gangsters have set up. And the movie comes to a complete halt so that she can narrate in full the series of events that we are watching happening on the screen. This happens a couple of times. And each time it happened, I was like, why did you bother making this a movie if you were just going to read verbatim the script that was clearly in the radio play? Uh, I think that there were times when this was so clearly a direct adaptation of a radio play. And that like really kind of sticks in my uh, throat a little bit because like film is a visual medium. And like, if you didn't have good ideas about making a movie, why did you make a movie out of this thing? Except for money, I guess. Um, I, I even think that in, in part, like all of the best ideas this movie has were clearly adapted directly from a radio play, right? Like I had mentioned earlier that like we keep hearing these like background noises that are obscuring the phone conversations in some um, important ways, right? So maybe characters can't overhear key information, although that doesn't really happen, or like characters are distracted. The whole movie kicks off with this um, – bizarre circumstance where the main character um accidentally gets the wires crossed and she um overhears the wrong conversation and overhears how some people are planning to murder a woman spoilers that woman turns out to be her and that leads her on her sort of phone driven investigation um that that plot point even is is kind of emblematic of my issue with this movie which is that I think that that plot point would work and make a lot of sense and be sort of harrowing and fun and scary in a radio play, but it feels silly in a movie, in my opinion, especially when uh, it's juxtaposed by, uh, you know, no uh, no shade to Burt Lancaster or Barbara Stanwyck, but they're really, really acting in this movie. Uh, in particular, Barbara Stanwyck is, is really, really acting. Uh, she's wheelchair bound through a psychosomatic noir illness with a heart condition, and that involves her repeatedly screaming that she's an invalid and then uh, walking around her apartment with this affliction where she can totally walk fine. She just has to kind of be holding onto a piece of furniture at all times. Again, in a radio play, when you hear that somebody can't walk, it's kind of scary and fun and exciting because now you are thematically bound with her, right? Like just like you're confined to this area where you're listening to the radio, 
this character is confined and that is your way into the story and everything unfolds along with her and with you. But in a movie, when we keep having these flashbacks and flashbacks within flashbacks and we keep cutting outside of the apartment, that whole idea is completely tossed away. And we get this thing that is just like the wrong medium for what ends up happening here. So like I came away, I guess, interested and I liked the story and I especially really liked the ending a whole bunch, which we can talk about. But I kept thinking like, this is a better radio play than it is a movie, I think. And I think, unfortunately, I even felt that at the end. So um, ultimately, not a bad story. Um, in fact, kind of a really interesting story with with some interesting um, feminist implications and some really interesting class implications as well, especially for um 1948. I can see why Orson Welles was so positive about it, but um, I don't think it works for me as a as a film specifically necessarily, which is um, sort of in and of itself a really interesting and fun experience to have. I, I, I don't mean to. Aaron. I don't mean to shit on Orson Welles. Uh, not shit on. I don't mean to. Uh, well, yeah, I don't mean to shit on Orson Welles after uh, David Fincher was. Uh, canceled for it on Twitter. Uh, but he did, uh, Lucille Fletcher did write a uh, radio drama for his Orson Welles show uh, back in 41. It was called The Hitchhiker. It's a very well-known, kind of like Sorry, Wrong Number. It's a, it's a very, very well-known uh, uh, radio play. Um, it's, actually, it's, it's better than this one is. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Lucille Fletcher is known for a lot of stuff. He has a lot of novels and radio plays, but Sorry, Wrong Number and The Hitchhiker are kind of two things that she is best known for. I, I wonder if Orson Welles was tossing her a bone here. Um, I, I, can I, see this. I also, I also thought that, sorry, I don't mean to interrupt you, but yes, I didn't bring that up. But like, like they, they had a professional relationship, right. And like, yeah, you know, but, but also I, to Harry's point, I could see this working really well as a radio play. Uh, I, I don't think it works very well as a movie. Uh, I didn't really like this movie that much. Um, I think that, there is uh, a pretty effective starting 10 minutes of this movie and an extremely effective final 10 minutes of this movie um, to the point where I was even a little shocked at the places that they went uh, yeah, dude. at the end of this. Um, but the the middle of this movie is is kind of brutal. Um, Harry's already gone a little bit into the structure of it uh, from, you know, kind of transferring this radio play to this movie. Um, it, it just doesn't work. I mean, we're, we're introduced to so many characters who are describing just, just voice acted narration about events that happened days ago, years ago. Um, you know, I am someone who is more defensive about voice acting in that manner, specifically in like noir films than most people. I think that recently there's been kind of this trend to call uh, a voice acting narration. Um, like, yeah. Show don't tell, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I think that maybe that's true, but there's still kind of this character that a lot of more films have that I defend. Um, I can't really defend it here. Uh, we, we don't actually get to spend a lot of time with Leona due to the structure of this film. Uh, Leona is, of course, connected to all of the events of this movie, but she's in kind of a shockingly small amount of it. We are given this kind of uh, setup at the very beginning of the movie that doesn't make a whole ton of sense and, again, might work better as a radio play. Uh, and then from there on, we actually spend a good deal more time with other characters. Uh, luckily, some of which who are actually, I think more interesting than Barbara Stanwyck. I don't mean to shit on Barbara Stanwyck. She is incredibly accomplished and famous uh, actor. I, I like her quite a bit in other films, um, but here I don't think she does a very good job. I think that 
her character is kind of horrible to watch. And I, uh, before people say like, that's the point, I think there is a stark difference between not liking a character and not liking to watch and experience a character. And I didn't like to watch and experience uh, Barbara Stanwyck's character of uh, Lenora here. Um, but I did like some of the side characters. I think I think Burt Lancaster does a great job here. Uh, Anne Richards as Sally Lord um, does a good job. I think kind of most importantly for me was, uh, I'm going to mess this name up, but Harold uh, Vermillier as uh, Waldo Evans, who is the pharmaceutical business partner of Henry's, who plays great. kind of, yeah, this kind of squeamish guy who gets kind of uh, convinced into going along with this illegal plot. Uh, but you can kind of tell that underneath the surface, he's really itching to go along with it for his own gain, but he kind of plays it off as this character who's like very shy and timid about the thought of, of going against the law. Um, I think that that character is really interesting. There's other things. This character is really great. Uh, sorry. Yeah, I don't mean to, go ahead. Uh, oh, he was the one character who was like, as I was watching this and he came to the fore, I was like, I could see the Coen brothers remaking this and doing a pretty good job of it. I know the Coen brothers have a really yeah. spotty track record with remakes, but <laughs> he was he was the one character where I was like, this is like a Coen character that they could take and run with. Um, if they didn't do the thing that they sometimes do, which is make him a uh, homophobic stereotype, which I think is also unfortunately kind of an implication that this character could be uh, like thrown into, but we can yeah. get to that. Which which uh which Cohen brothers like staple uh, character actor would you want? Uh, the guy from Miller's Crossing. Um, I can't remember his name now, but uh, the, the he... short Italian guy. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm finding him. I'm finding him. Um, uh, John Polito. John Polito. Yes. John Polito would that's be great it, at it. that. Yes, he would. Yes. He would be. John Polito would be very good at it. Um. Yeah, so overall, uh, I didn't really love this movie. I think that just the structure of it uh, is bad. Uh, again, maybe works for a radio play, doesn't work for a movie, but you know, I think it is maybe still worth watching uh, for to get to the ending of the film. I think the ending is very good. Yeah, just to reiterate on something, Aaron said a lot of really good things there, but the first thing that that uh, came to my mind was just that, like, to speak to the second act and its problems. This movie is is driven entirely by exposition, um, and it's particularly egregious in the second act when we get, I believe, literally four back-to-back phone calls where characters just have a long explanation of what's really going on with um, with uh, the main character. And, like, we, we hear it from their perspective, but there's not even really editorializing. Like, it, it never comes to... Um, it never comes to be proven true that they were lying at all, right? Like none of these characters are even obscuring anything. They're just literally stating the plot of the movie, but over the phone, which again would totally work in a radio play, right? Because that's kind of what you have to do when you're in a radio play. But when you're in a movie, even when you can visually depict what they're saying without some addition, like some unreliable narration or some sort of editorializing on the part of the character, this narration becomes really rote and, frustrating um there are exceptions right like there are some scenes where um one of the longest scenes of expositions is just a flashback that um the main character has of her romance lenora's um romance with henry and like that works okay but um for the most part a lot of the plot that is delivered in this movie is just straight up delivered as through mouthpieces and it makes for a frustratingly sort of um tedious and and repetitive uh plot conveyance it's i like 
I think we do need to lang- languish a little bit in the in the structure of this movie. I know that's it's the only thing that we've all kind of fallen on harshly, and I think deservedly so. Like, be- it's not just that it gets so specific and that it gets so like it betrays its own form as a radio play. What worked about the radio play, I'm assuming I haven't listened to it, but it starts like the plot itself starts with like rear window levels of simplicity. Somebody who cannot do anything about a murder knows about the murder and it just drills down into a novel's worth of exposition from there. And it's not helped by the fact that interstitials between these, uh, between this, these like bouts of exposition are just leading us to the next phone call. And then we have, you know, I don't know, 15, 20 minutes of exposition and flashbacks within flashbacks. And the structure of that just makes me feel like, okay, now we've come back up to the base plot, the a plot of, you know, what's happening in Barbara Stanwyck's room and she cannot go anywhere. Uh, and, and then I'm reminded of, well, that's where we started. And that's what, like what I really am interested in. And I understand that's the, like the, the winding nature of what's happening from, you know, in terms of uh, noir genre conventions, but it really does. It, it plays that card way too much to be effective to me, even to the point where like the ending, which a couple of y'all have uh, referred to as like either not necessarily satisfying, but like the, the resolution can be shocking and there are elements of it that really kind of worked for you by the end. None of that landed for me by the end. It just ground me to a complete halt. And this is a morning movie where I had coffee with me y'all. And it was, and it fell apart for me. It just, it did not hold that much water. I think the overall tone of this movie can be like Cody said, long stretches of it can be really interesting. And like the camera work I already mentioned, there are some really fun conventions there, but I do not, the whole movie as like everything that everybody's saying about, uh, you know, whether or not it was doing, I guess the pieces of the movie, whether or not they were coming together for you and like what it was trying to do. I don't know that it was working for me almost ever. I don't know how like that bounces off everybody else's experiences, but really like it really did not. I cannot stress enough how little this movie worked for me in that respect. I think this might be, and I'm, I'm going to shit on the movie more in a sec. Not sh- I'm going to critique the movie. I think uh, fairly. In a hey, second, hey, but you, I do- you, you're the, you're the, you're the Chicago boy, greatest city on earth. And you get I'm to judge Chicago this movie boy. appropriately. I was excited for the references to Chicago. Uh, unfortunately, uh, you don't really feel the, the great character and spirit of Chicago uh, coming through this film. Um, I was going to say it takes you- place in New York. What? Well, I know, but the, no, there are there are cutbacks to yeah. They Chicago. they're from Chicago. They lived in Chicago, Rassland. right? Yeah. Um, Jason, I think this movie maybe, uh, and I, you know, we've talked about it uh, with with the Friedkin flicks, uh, great morning movies. I think this movie kind of has to be a night movie. I think maybe that's one of your issues right there. Then it's then it's a, then it's a close my eyes and drift away to sleep movie. Honestly, yeah, it, the middle, like, there's nothing brutal. there. That, yeah, you're right. It's the middle that falls apart. I mean, even by the end, I think the middle being so mucky kept me like stuck in place for the ending personally maybe that's just my own listening or excuse me watching habits yeah well and to be like i think that the the i was talking about the beginning of this movie being i, I think it's kind of an interesting premise right like it is very hitchcock in that manner um i think that though it's also kind of, still kind of shit um like if you're going to do the narration thing uh again which i've defended a little bit um you kind of have to have that narration either have a character to it, which a lot of noir films do. That's or, that's the thing about about noir, right? Is that well, it's fun. It's fun to get in the head of a character played by yeah. Humphrey Bogart because he's a really fascinating and, and interesting, jaded individual, and you come to see the world through his eyes. Or you have to have a story, even if the narration isn't up to that level. You need to have a story then that is up to that level. And I think that the the kind of the basic plot here. Um, 
is, is kind of troublesome, right? Like the idea of this woman who overhears uh, the planning of a murder is an interesting idea, but it, it very quickly falls apart in a way that I, I don't usually tend to scrutinize movies in this manner. But she overhears a murder being plotted that we later learn at the very end of the movie to find out that it is actually her murder. I think anybody with half a brain probably figures that out. Pretty quickly. But yeah, but okay, All right, that is an interesting idea. Um, but then it kind of segs into, okay, her husband is not home, um, which I guess is like kind of an interesting point to add on there. Like if I was uh, a woman and I was alone in my house and I overheard this murder in the same exact manner and my husband wasn't home, um, I would probably be spooked by that and be quite scared. I think that's maybe fair, but she very quickly kind of transitions to caring only about the fact that her husband isn't home. And the fact that there was this murder is something yeah, that yeah. she is unable to effectively communicate to the police or to any interested parties, which is kind of this fine thematic element. But at the background, there's this, this murder that is being planned and it, it gets sidelined for 60 minutes of this movie. It, it's absurd. Who, who gives a shit about your husband, lady? There's a murder at 1115. Yeah. Like, he, yeah, he's cheating on you or he fucking got hit by a bus. Like, okay, that sucks. One of those two options is no good. But like, yeah, you should be figuring out this other thing. Most definitely. Uh, none of this is uh, terribly new. I'm mostly just kind of adding on to um, the aforementioned points right now, which are great points. Um, fun to shit on movies, etc. Um, I guess the th- thing that I had the bigger problem with I mean, the, the way that we receive exposition, the way that we're presented with information isn't great. Um, but I think the, the facet that I took a greater issue with was how the receiving of information interacted with what the camera was doing. Um, it never felt to me like this movie knew what to do with the camera, at least consistently. Um, and I, I, it had been brought up by one or more of you here, but the the way in which we're shooting people on the phone when they're talking, you know, as opposed to when two people are in the same room together conversing, you have, you know, uh, either like a medium or, or long shot or like shot reverse shot um, in, you know, swap in, in lieu of that, you know, since we do, since we're, we're talking on the phone and I guess sometimes doing shot reverse shot with people on the phone instead, what the movie chose to do. And I, I really liked this choice, um, especially with, with Stanwyck's character with Leona, it would be a close up of her on the phone. And then we would either rotate around the room or like have the camera focused on her and like slowly zoom out. It created this like weirdly eerie feeling of like isolation, right as as we're shown her in this in this big house this big empty house she has nobody around her she's she's all alone it gave me big uh black christmas vibes um some of the shots in that movie where it's just like the camera's focused on a ringing phone and then we zoom out and it's like you know where is everybody um that sort of stuff worked um but going back to a sequence that I think Harry touched on um, the, the conversations with Sally and that she's on wherever it was, Staten Island or whatever. And you know, we're, we're showing her doing these things and she's also narrating it. And then there was a scene immediately afterward where she was on the phone with Leona describing a similar sequence. It's like, Hey, I went back and followed these people again. She was describing it in detail and it led to me overthinking this movie and like, well, <laughs> knowing what this movie needs to do to like communicate these things. This is either an instance of the movie telling us Sally is lying because we're not seeing what she's seeing. And like, maybe this will like come back in an interesting way, or it's this movie making a really 
like shitty <laughs> decision and not choosing to share a point of view with Sally in this moment. And it's just being inconsistent and, and sloppy. And it leaned more towards the latter, which um, was kind of a bummer. Also really quickly, since I, we shouted out a few of the, the other actors in this movie, uh, Wendell Corey, who played Dr. Philip Alexander, uh, also uh, going back to rear window for the umpteenth time, he plays uh, Jeffries's uh, like war buddy turned detective uh, in rear window. Um, really cool. Um, and good actor as far as I can tell. Uh, and then Ed Begley, who was um, Leona's uh, father in this movie, J.P. Cotterell. Um, I only know him from this and as juror, uh, juror number 10 and 12 Angry Men. Um, and in both cases, he's kind of like a semi-veiled piece of shit. Um, and from what I can tell, he's really good at playing that. Yeah, um, he shout, shout us to the bag man. He's, he's great. Goodness. Yeah, the bag man. Ooh, that'll trend. It's trending already. It's already on Twitter. It's blowing up. Um, uh, that it is, and that concludes my points. Go ahead. Okay. I uh, sorry. I I guess I um maybe had a more positive experience with this than than most of y'all. Maybe just because my expectations were different. I didn't find it particularly difficult to follow. Um, maybe just because I I don't know. Um, Jason, you were traveling. Uh, not to part the kimono too much, but um, and so like I I wasn't as sort of like like confused or not confused, but like, like taken aback by some of the contrivances, which are contrivances. Um, but that made the ending and even the, the criticism Aaron that you had about the husband thing, I kind of understood that even if the movie wasn't making it explicit, that she was creating, um, connections already, um, and, and sort of suspected her husband. I think that's corroborated by, the way that her flashbacks go and the way that the second act of this movie is largely about, it's like making a murderer of Burt Lancaster's character where we see like his full like villain origin story that explains like how he got to be in the psychological headspace to make him primed for crime and eventually primed for murder. Um, there's something kind of novelistic about that in a way that actually works for me. Um, in particular, there's one scene where um uh, Leona has a brief conversation with Sally Hunt Lord where there are um, gangsters basically in her apartment or not gangsters, cops. Uh, there's a her husband is the actual like D.A. and there's a cop, I, I guess, or somebody collaborating in there with her. And so she has to give uh, Leona basically a brush off. Um, she pretends to explain a recipe to her on the uh, phone and then she walks into another room so that she can say, I have to call you back because there are people here who can't hear me talk to you about this right now and and um hangs up the phone uh first of all that really worked for me um that was a good way to use the um the mechanics that the film had established uh the the film doesn't do a ton of that but they do some of it as evidence there and then after that first phone call that's when we get a really lengthy flashback of sally lord and her connection to henry um leona's husband and also to how leona and henry met for the first time and that really sets the real stakes of this movie up which is funny because like to your point about the rear windowness it it feels bad because it's a real bait and switch right we're like we we hear about this murder and we they set it up that way but the actual start of this film is when we start to learn who henry and leona are and so there's 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 a sense in which like the annoying contrivance that sets this up where she hears about the murder that's maybe going to happen is completely unnecessary and actually divorced for the from the story in a way that illustrates how deep a contrivance it is right it's like 
that only kind of got her in the headspace to start asking questions when in fact, like there was a better way to do that in a much more simple way, which is even what I kind of thought to maybe I was confused too, but I honestly thought that it wasn't a wrong number that that conversation about the murder was actually just happening at her husband's office. And that was going to be a reveal. I think that would make more sense than the, the pure contrivance that this movie sets up. But anyway, um, not to, not to belabor the point, but I guess that stuff kind of worked for me because I was actually really interested in the psychology of Henry Stevenson. And like, that was kind of the secret key to this movie. I feel like is, is the butting heads of, Leona and Henry and how neither of them could sort of like, like uh, capitulate to the other person or stop being the people that they had sort of been made to be and had to be in their own minds and how that set up the mutually assured destruction that they are affected by at the end of the movie. It sort of worked for me um, from a, from a thematic plot sort of exegesis perspective but i understand how it didn't especially because it kind of gets lost in the weeds and especially because uh the actual like mechanical particulars of the conspiracy that unfolds rely on um characters that we barely ever see and that don't make a huge impact on the story and that kind of like are introduced off camera right like i think in particular um henry stevenson meets the gangster that uh, Murano that uh, helps set up the conspiracy to steal the pharmaceuticals um, completely off camera and then just introduces the idea to um, the uh, uh, Wendell Corey's character, Dr. Philip Alexander, that kind of sucks. Right. And that makes it sort of confusing, but um, ultimately I I guess it it came together for me, just not the way I wanted it to um, filmically, uh, if that makes sense. Yeah, uh, two kind of points. One, I think going back to a brief uh, comment you made, I do think that the kind of brief uh, side plot uh, with Anne Richards' character, Sally Lord, as she attempts to find a phone uh, that will work for her in order to uh, call um, call Leonora back, I think that that is interesting. The part where she goes into her son's bedroom with the phone, uh, pretending to give a recipe uh, so that she can have an actual conversation. I think that's interesting. I think her having to go down to the subway uh, in order to find a phone because all of the shops have closed for the night. I think that that's great as well. There's a moment where her husband and uh, who works for the DA and uh, the, the police officer that he's working with um, actually mention for a second, like, hey, I should go use the phone. And she's like hiding around the corner. Um, I think that yeah, that is really interesting. Good like I, I forgot point. about some of those. Yeah. Yeah, it's like, again, a little contrived, but I think that that works. I think that if there was more stuff in this movie playing around with that structure, I think that's where you start to get to a point like a rear window that constantly does that. It's Hitchcock is so much about setting up these rules and expectations and then playing along with that game until it's naturally in point. This movie doesn't do that, and that's why it doesn't work as well. Um, It also is not as interesting of a a conceit, I don't think. but yeah, that that was a bummer. And then to the second thing you mentioned, I do actually think that a lot of the kind of psyche uh, for uh, her husband, Henry, um, is actually quite interesting. I think that his yeah. backstory uh, is very fascinating. I think that if there's really any meat on the bones that is the, this kind of movie's characterization, I think it's mainly with his character. A hundred percent, right? I mean, like, Fiona. like. It, it's kind of why it's frustrating that the um, the framing is as poor as it is because like their their relationship is the actual story here, you know. 
Yeah, of course. I mean, he, he is a character who, um, you know, comes from a lower class background like uh, Leonore's uh, father, who is this very wealthy um, kind of drug uh, company owner. And I think the fact that he is forced into this kind of success that feels unearned and feels hollow, I think that's like a really interesting backstory for him. Um, and I think that by the end of his film, even though he's obviously a, a bad guy due to the stuff that he's done and the, you know, the fact that he put out a hit on his wife, um, I think that there is some sort of empathy that you feel for his circumstances. And I think that that is uh, a little skillfully done, I think. I would agree that like, the relationship between uh, Lenora and Henry is is the story. I disagree. I don't believe that it's actually the movie. I think that it's what the movie is saying. Hey, this is like the heart of the plot. It is really like what we're getting to with all of these contrivances and mechanics. But I do not think that it actually ends up being a central part of the movie as as like a viewing experience to me. It like we don't see those moments of. Uh, like internal character development really happening. We see the plot elements, excuse me, the plot moments that the moments that move the plot forward in, in like those calls, in those flashbacks, it ends up, it ends up feeling like, and get this, like a game of telephone where we're getting like many different Holy shit. perspectives and, and like the views. I, I mean, nobody's an unreliable narrator here. Everybody's like the people that we see. There's a reason that Burt Lancaster himself isn't part of the A plot until later, right? He's always just talked about. There are elements that like, oh, I, I was talking to Henry or, you know, the doctor and Henry decided on a, on a way to break the diagnosis to Lenora. There's a reason that he's sidelined as an actual element of the of the A plot until later on. And it's because if he were there earlier, he would have like the whole thing would be undone. Right. But the fact that those are like by necessity, by the necessity of the contrivances that this plot that this movie puts forward to to like unfurl its plot in that very noir way just lessens the impact for me. It ends up like. And I can see that it's doing something at a like a larger, maybe metatextual level. It's not. I don't think it works. I see that it's there and it's helping me understand when, you know, when Harry and Aaron and Cody talk about how this movie is using those mechanics to a certain end, I see them. I just don't think that it works in the way that maybe it's supposed to. And that's probably like in part a translation from, uh, you know, audio waves to audio visual elements. You know, you have to have something that connects two moments in film where you don't really need that in audio. You can just sort of have a transition or you can have the implied transition between two things or as a genius plot device, you can just have the ringing of a phone as a change of scene, but it just does not happen here in this movie for me. I like, I see how the pieces are and where they're supposed to be coming together. It's just not creating like a beautiful, nice thing to see for me. I think nice thing to see is, is probably the, the, the key word there, because I actually, um, this is where we heartily agree. I think, um, it's, it's strange, right? Because like, I, I hate to keep harping on the sort of medium confusion, but like if my issues with the, the way that this movie was shot and the exposition were problems with the fact that it was, um, adapted from a radio play, this is the part that really feels like it would benefit from being a novel. Um, I, like Aaron said, I'm not uh, a person who is like staunchly anti or staunchly show don't tell. I like a good noir narration. Um, similarly, I'm not anti daydream or anti flashback, but um, there is a sense, especially when you open with the strong sort of lead in that this movie has the, the sort of rear window effect where we establish a simple and highly compelling central point. Um, 
that all flashbacks become really secondary in importance, right? Like we keep seeing the ticking clock in this movie. We know there's an established time frame. 1115 is when the murder is going to take place. It's nine o'clock when the movie starts. We've got, you know, uh, two hours and 15 minutes to figure out who's going to be murdered, why, and how we can stop it. And then we keep cutting to these 20 minute long flashbacks from years ago and working up to that. And it's like when we've got the sort of Damocles hanging over our heads it it really makes the flashbacks feel secondary in importance and they feel quite static, right? Because like we don't get the sense that these characters are ever going to meet or meet or um, come together or have character <laughs> arcs in the, uh, Sorry, the in, no, it's okay. In, in the present, uh, all of their characterization and all of their character arc happens in flashback and in reverse. And so like, this is, which again, in another movie maybe could work, but not in a movie where the, the time frame and the, the centrality of, of the plot is supposed to be motivated by, um, this, this paranoia and this fear culminating. Um, I think that they're trying to go with like this idea that like, this is, this is the, the terrible thing that's been fomenting for years. Right. And we're, we're reaching the boiling point now where like, this is, this is the um, culmination, the sort of like end product of all of their um, resentment for one another and all of their lifelong um, anger with themselves and with their circumstances. And finally it's all coming to a head in this one terrible night. Um, it doesn't really work because of the framing and because of the plotting and because of the medium. Um, it's funny, you know, I mean, I think it would work as a novel. I think it would work as a radio play better than it works as a movie, but this is the movie that we had, I guess. Um, at least that's my two cents about it. I, do you think you mentioned kind of the the sort of Damocles uh, aspect? I, I did not at no point in time, and this is I think a massive failure of the movie. At no point in time did I ever think like, oh, it's it's ten thirty, like she has yep. forty five minutes left. It, there's a moment near the very end where I think the clock strikes like exactly eleven, and you know it's going to be eleven fifteen, and you kind of feel it a bit there, right? But like, but like, compare that to a Hitchcock movie or to something like yeah. High Noon, where like it's fucking like hanging over you, and you're like you're dying, right? Like in High Noon, you're like dying by the end of that movie because you're like, holy shit, it's happening! Like and it's the soundtrack happen. is changing and speeding up, and the every single time the bell chimes, yeah, High Noon is a perfect example. Of, of how to do something like that. Um, I think that the the structure of having these different phone calls actually could have been used to great effect if they had structured this kind of constant reminder in between each of those phone calls. They do it, a, there's like a shot here or there, but it, it's not as structured as I, I think it needs to be. Um, yeah. Uh, you're totally right. Um, first, shout out to, to High Noon, um, seconding. Or shout out to High Noon. And my dad. That's a great. That's a great movie. It's the best yeah. dad movie ever. It is. It is a very good dad movie. Oh man, what if we did a, a dad movie month? That would be awesome. You know. Um, you know what? You know case, what my dad movie would be. My dad what? movie would be Napoleon Dynamite. My dad, my swarthy seventy-year-old Greek dad, loves Napoleon Dynamite. That's maybe the, respect to your dad. That is maybe the worst dad movie I think I've ever. It is. Heard of. It is bizarrely undead and. Anyway, he's the anti. It's the anti dad movie. I think my dad actually. I mean, I saw Napoleon Dynamite with my dad, um, and we've talked about movies every so often. I think he still has a fondness for it. Dad, if you're listening to this, feel free to like text me and correct me on that if I'm wrong. Um, 
in any case, what point was I? Oh yeah, the the tracking of time. Um, they to be fair, they I thought this movie had that for a little bit, like an indicator between conversations of like what was happening, what conversations were being had with whom, what was being communicated and at what times. There's that like sheet where Leona is like marking the messages that she had been getting throughout the day for Henry. And we we get it coming it comes back uh in like scattered shots here and there. But after the the I think the the first shot of it it had three I believe three entries, but no further entries get added to it throughout the yeah. movie. And I, you know, furthermore, like we're never either the movie doesn't let us because we're not meant to see it or it like doesn't care if we see what's written on quick. the sheet or not. Very quick. Yeah. Very quick, very illegible. Um, I tried to get information from it and it was just, you know, it, blink and you miss it type of thing. Um, yeah, I, I thought we would have had that. That's something would have, that would have been appreciated uh, by me and probably others. Um, and yeah, I don't know. I, I thought it'd be Chekhov's phone log, but we didn't get it. Oh, sorry. I didn't see that you put your hand down, Aaron. Um, oh, I shouldn't have mentioned that. Uh, never mind. Uh, okay. So there are a couple of things that, that I feel like we should maybe iterate on that, that are reiterate that are actually interesting about this movie. First of all, we've, we've sort of, uh, been critical of Barbara Stanwyck. Um, it's worth noting that this is a movie from, um, 1948 that is both, uh, starring a woman and written by a woman, which is very cool. Um, and she is a, in my opinion, I know, Aaron, you had said that this didn't work for you. It worked for me a little bit better. Lenora is a hateful woman, right? She's not a good person, like not even ambiguously. She's right, not right. a very good person. She's a spoiled brat. She's a spoiled rich person who is so used to getting her own way that she's literally developed a psychosomatic disorder when she doesn't get her way. <laughs> she breaks down whenever anybody stands up to her and has a heart attack. Um, the fact that has a heart her, attack. Yeah, Burt Lancaster learns that this is psychosomatic, and you can see the like jokerfication of Burt Lancaster as it happens, where he's like, "Motherfucker!" Like that's how she won every argument we ever had for the last twenty years. Is she has a heart attack whenever I tell her off, and now you're going to tell me that she was making it up or not making it up, but that it was mental? Um, that's a very funny scene. Um, she she's interesting, right? Because she never is redeemed. In fact, the fact that she's not really redeemed is the point. Uh, neither of these characters are redeemed. That was the shocking uh, ending that we refer to is that the murder happens. Spoilers. Barbara Stanwyck's character is killed at the end of this movie. The final scene is her being killed. We see her dangling hand and then it says the, the murderer picks up the phone and he says, sorry, wrong number. And then he hangs it up. Burt Lancaster, meanwhile, is about to be arrested and taken to jail for the rest of his life for a conspiracy to commit um, massive years of, of fraud with this pharmaceutical um, stealing that he stole from his father-in-law's company. So neither of these characters are redeemed. I kept waiting for a cheesy ending where they somehow make it out and then they didn't. And that was fantastic to me. Um, and uh, Aaron, you've got something to say, but I would also like to point out that like, there's a really interesting feminist lens to read this movie through, wherein Burt Lancaster essentially is forced to play housewife or he's given a, a token job and he feels emasculated. And in addition to his class drives, there's like a really big masculine drive to his character where he can't stand the idea that he is not the person with power in the relationship, that he is, he is fundamentally defined by his wife and his father-in-law and he can't make it on his own. He's obsessed with making it on his own and, and making his own money and being his own man, as opposed to being given this 
cushy position as quote unquote vice president, where he is, as Cody pointed out, the invoice king. And he he goes to lunch early every day and drinks martinis and nobody gives a shit because he doesn't actually have any real power. Um, and he can't get a new job because he's being blackballed by um, his father-in-law who uses his industry connections to make sure that he can't get a job anywhere else. So he's trapped with his wife until he decides or he's coerced into killing her. Um, so like it, it's an interesting role reversal, right? He is given a, a housewife sort of position. And this is a movie about what happens when an egotistical um driven man is given the role that a woman would typically be forced to play. Um, I think that the fact that this was written in the forties by a woman and it stars a woman and it is about that are all things that are of note, like deeply of note, uh, regardless of this movie's other potential failures. Yeah. I, I, I also do think, you know, I think you're right on the money when you say that, uh, Leona, who I've been calling Lenora, I think the entire recording here. So Every single person that. here, other than me, has said Lenora. Uh, she's going to join Roy Schneider in the mispronounced yeah. name Trilove Hall of Fame. Um, I think I started that that that's oh, on the record. Thanks, Cop Cody. I, I did that, and then I think Jason did it right after me. And I, I I'm looked a at my notes. I was following your lead, Ch- Chicago boy. I was following your fucking lead. Tattletale. To be fair, I've, I do not know what the name Leona is. I've heard Lenora, but anyway. Uh, yeah, because I, of Edgar Allan Poe, right? That's what I was thinking. Yeah. Um, I, do, I do think that her character is, if not sympathetic, then maybe you can empathize with her a little bit. I think in the same way that her husband is defined by his relationship to her, she is defined by her relationship to her father. Um, and yeah. even if she is given uh, uh, a degree of power that her husband doesn't have, in the relationship, um, she still is kind of nevertheless uh, uh, fitted into a a certain slot that she cannot uh, get out of in society. Um, She doesn't desire to in the same way that uh, her husband does. I think that as you you brought up, Harry, that is kind of the interesting point with Henry is that he is given really everything you need to live, but he does feel um, emasculated. I think that the movie doesn't make that point, but I think that that we probably should read that into the character. Um, but the, the movie keeps kind of framing it as the sense of freedom that he doesn't have uh, and that he kind of grew up as this uh, very poor uh, boy from a very poor area outside of Chicago. And he kind of views um, Leona's father as this kind of symbol, maybe of who you want to be in society, who's a, a poor person who made it by his success in business. And he makes it by marrying uh, Leona, and that is, you know, kind of rudest to him. Um, I think that there's very interesting stuff there uh, by the end of the film. Uh, so I, while watching this movie, and I mentioned it at the outset, I wanted to get Harry's take. You, you, I wanted to crack the nut on some of uh, the things you were saying about, like the um, feminist and class positioning of this movie. Uh, one which you've already sort of broached, but then I wanted to tie it back if I could to, because this movie, when I was watching it was starting as a joke, but like by the end, sincerely, I had thought of a piece that, uh, that Harry, sorry, dropped my phone, uh, that Harry wrote for unwinnable, uh, a, an online, uh, magazine about culture, games, art, and, uh, and movies, etc. Um, in issue, Jesus, I'm not going to know what issue this was. Uh, but he covered, uh, the ways technology reflects, um, the characters in two different works. It's called ghost in the machine covering a uh, personal shopper and legend of Zelda breath in the wild breath of the wild. Uh, and in both um, 
well, I'll let Harry dig a little bit deeper into them, but I want to know how, if at all, the technology that the characters are using in these movies, in this movie, is sort of impacting and reflecting the characters' identities and sort of their um who they are and want to be in this movie. Does it does it go there at all for you, Harry? I'm trying to like pick a, the way that your mind thinks about these things, uh, even if it's like contradictory or not where my mind goes. Wow. Uh, first of all, thank you. That's I'm uh, blushing. You can't see me, but uh, yeah, your, your reputation precedes you. Um, that's a really interesting point. Um, to be honest, I there there is something interesting there, right? I, especially because this movie opens with narration to that effect about the importance and centrality of phones in our lives, which, you know, in 2020 is kind of funny to read, but it, it was true then, right? Where it was like, oh, love can happen on the phone. And like the phone has become so important to our lives and it can also lead to terror and even death. And, um, there is like a fundamental lack of communication between these people, right? There, there are people who cannot make each other, uh, like, see each other's point of view because they're so committed to the roles that they're playing. Um, like Leona especially needs Burt Lancaster's character, Henry to be a certain way for her. She courts him uh, to, to groom him basically into this role. And once he's there, she um, controls that uh, her father does the same thing to her in, in a really incomplete way. Uh, that was a scene I wanted to point out, but um, the, the phone kind of fits into that, right? Where it's like, it's a, it's a literal mechanical communication. That's imperfect. Um, sometimes mistakes happen. Uh, sometimes mistakes create connections that wouldn't be there. Otherwise that's how this movie begins. Um, it it's democratizing in terms of how it works where there's a go between for everyone and there there's sort of like a suggestion of imperfection to the way that uh that things are communicated so that's a really fascinating point i think that there's some connection maybe tenuous maybe not in the sort of like um the way that that changing technologies can um can change or uh, promote our own role plays as important or central to, to the ways that we communicate with one another. Mm -hmm. Um, that's a really, yeah, that's, that's interesting. Um, like, yeah, like the, the ways that the, that like the story and mechanics were, were combining there and, uh, Cody, I might, I, I apologize for stealing your thunder if you were going to mention these, but like the first time I started to think about that was when, uh, I've already forgotten her name. Her name is Barbara Stanwyck. Uh, and she is, uh, on the phone and she's sort of, um, hyperventilating about being alone and, uh, and worrying. I, I think she's still on the phone with the operator trying to get them to, to call back to the number that, uh, that she dialed into accidentally. And the camera just sort of leaves her room and s just like caresses all over this big empty apartment. Uh, and she's talking about how her, uh, her maid and well, her, the people watching over her apartment have left and why would they leave now? And all these kinds of things. And then it's mirrored later on in a scene where her father picks up the phone and the camera just sort of like, uh, glosses over everything in his, in his, in his home back in Chicago. Yeah. I think, great right? thing. To, great uh, thing and, to bring up. Like, that's, that's like the, maybe the best scene in the, or the best shot in the movie, right? Is that it pans well, over his big what, office. Yeah. And it's it's stuffed animals like like taxidermied animals and then pictures of Leona uh, through all stages of her life. And it's like it's not subtle. Right. Yeah. But it's like it's right there. <laughs> right. Right. It's like that is when the movie was perfectly in marriage of what it was 
like the story it was telling and the things it was showing with me. Otherwise, it felt like disjointed and rushed and slow and, you know, paced or plotting. Uh, but those moments when it had like the wherewithal to say like, okay, so we're uniquely positioned to show you things that we cannot in a radio play. Uh, right now, while this person's on the phone sort of explaining their position, we're going to show you things about their life, about themselves and about their relationships and about their own identities while it's going on. It's Again, it's not like groundbreaking filmmaking, but it really worked in those moments for me. And it does that precious few times throughout. Uh, but I, I was I was heartened to hear Cody bring it up, too, when he was talking about some of the cinematography in this movie, because it did ring to me as like one of the more uh, effective aspects of the movie. But it, it's just a shame to me that it's so short, but it does like that marriage of building the character and showing us something feels like, Oh, so they remembered how to make a movie for, you know, 15 to 20 seconds at a time. Um, I think that the, not to go back too far here. I think that the question of technology is, is kind of an, an interesting one. Um, I've been kind of Googling very quickly uh, just to see any sort of numbers um, because my impression was that uh, by 1948, when this movie came out, um, household phones would have been, I mean, phones were invented in the 1800s, right? Like household phones would be an extremely common thing. Um, but that actually is not the case. And maybe that's uh, kind of ties in here to what this movie is about. Uh, there was a source here, um, the core question, but it is sourcing a legitimate uh, study that says that by 1948, year the film came out, uh, the 30th millionth phone was connected in the United States. Um, so, Especially if I think if you think about kind of maybe the five years, 10 years uh, preceding when this movie came out, uh, I think that phones were obviously uh, something that everybody was familiar with, right? There'd be phones in common areas and telephone poles and whatnot. But the household phone was something that at this point was getting more and more adopted. Um, and so I think this movie could very well be read as a kind of response to that kind of explosion in uh, technology that was, al al along with a lot of technology, it was exploding kind of in the early to mid uh, 20th century that was for personal consumption and household use uh, in the ways that a lot of that kind of technology was used uh, uh, community-based and, um, you know, kind of in communal areas, right? I think there's something about the telephone specifically and the adoption of the household telephone that uh, enables greater communication, uh, that right. greater right. Um, connection with other people, but doesn't Yo. necessarily foster any sort of valuable communication. And I think that in a lot of ways, you, you have kind of reactions to televisions and smartphones and whatnot. Um, I think that there is something similar here that is a critique of being able to communicate with anyone at any point in time. Here we go. Want to, but not being able to actually communicate what you need to, which is hey, there's this murder, right? I have this information that I would not have had 20 years ago, but I'm not able to do anything with this information due to the structure of the technology. Well, and in fact, you she learned about the murder via the phone, but that same process complicated it to the point where she couldn't communicate it, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. it's it's kind of an interesting that's that's like a poignant metaphor even for like the internet almost like like it it's still relevant right like the ways that, oh, that technology technology enable but also uh, unenable or or disable um, our ability to comp comprehend and communicate. Um, I have an I have an interesting sort. Sorry, Aaron, were you finished? Uh, no, you yeah, you're good. Um, the the sort of interesting thesis I've been maybe kind of putting together based on what Jason, you said, and, and Aaron, what you said is that the, there's a real irony here where like, this feels like in, 
uh, technology positive movie in a lot of ways, despite um, some of the criticisms or critiques that Aaron, you brought up um, in that, like, like the telephone in this time was um, a class symbol, but it was also a democratization of class, right? Like everyone can use it. Everyone can talk on it. Um, there's a, there's a great scene where um, Sally Hunt Lord is, is hunting for nickels and she has to hang up because she doesn't have any more. And she has to ask somebody else for change. Um, Burt Lancaster's character can use the phone, right? But he only has an office phone once he's made it. Um they're ironically these characters are better at communicating with one another they seem to be on the phone like i said there are no unreliable narrations once they're on the phone you could argue that the first real com i mean literally in the film in the frame of the camera the first real conversation that henry and leona have in present day happens over the phone it's also maybe the first time they're actually communicating with one another honestly where he's like this is what i did this is why i did it i'm so sorry it's not too late you have to go to the door she says i i understand but i can't um, the reason why they seem to be better at communicating is because of the absences that the telephone creates. Like her disability is invisible and not pertinent when she's on the telephone. Um, she doesn't have to look at the former um, flame of her husband's when they're on the phone with one another. Uh, they don't have to be confused by by one another. They don't have to read body expressions. There's a sense in which the the limitations of the technology promote or make possible a more i not idealized but a more constructed form and this is a very modernist reading right a very contemporary reading because i'm also thinking about like your online presentation and your sort of like media any mediated presentation is performative right there's a sense in which talking on the phone is somewhat performative as well in this movie which is really interesting um and I think that this is a movie about the fact that 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 idealistic performance of who we want to be could not overcome the realities of what was and was not enough to overcome class and um, gender inequalities, right? Because in the end, the reason she couldn't save herself is because she couldn't get up because she was too scared because of the illness that she gave herself as as a uh, consequence of the life she'd been leading. And the reason why Burt Lancaster couldn't save her is because of the own sort of like process that he put into motion, which continued to happen in motion because the communication that would have called it off didn't happen because of the phones, right? So there's an interesting sense in which this technology might be paving the way for new possibilities, but it is not erasing the past. And in any, in some ways, it is complicating or bringing to a head the problems created by uh, the sort of like sins of our fathers, so to speak, which is really interesting. Um, and maybe not necessarily all that was intended by the film, but something that's interesting to take away from it. Yeah, I think there's something interesting thematic there where the, the you know, even if we read this film, and I, I think I do, but even if we read this film as a kind of reactionary film, uh, you know, kind of taking a look at the rise of, of household telephones, um, I still do think it's interesting that the kind of communication breakdown is between a husband and wife kind of in their daily life. Like the, the phone isn't really totally yes, responsible for 100%. that. 100%. That's know? like kind of the whole point, right? Is that it yeah. wasn't the phone. Yeah. Yeah. Um, 
I think that's interesting, but I do think that, uh, and this is kind of, I think maybe the last major thing I have to say about the movie is that I think that your point about the clarity of messages uh, through the telephone is actually like one of the big drawbacks of this movie. It's one of the reasons why the narration doesn't work for me. Yeah. Um, is that specifically in noir films, um, the unreliable nature of narration is often extremely key. And I don't just mean, I think, a lot of people tend to kind of misread unreliable narrators as simply kind of misstating the, the truth of events where a lot of unreliable narrators, not as much in movies specifically in like books, but um, you do see it in movies as well. It, it's a tonal thing, right? It is somebody interpreting events in a different manner. It is uh, you're kind of separate from the mind of a character. Yeah. Well, no, Rashomon is specifically a different <laughs> of events, right? Um I think that that's done interestingly in noir films. I think the fact that everybody here is stating things matter of factly. There is a ridiculous moment when Waldo Evans, uh, which is Henry's um, kind of pharmaceutical contact uh, business partner that they they steal drugs and then sell them. Um, he calls uh, Leona on the phone and just basically just reveals this entire criminal scheme that she was unaware of. It, it makes absolutely it's, no sense. It sucks, man. It's yeah, it's bad. And I, I've talked about, I like that character a lot. I think he's played very well. But the fact that this character would just call up and say, like, yeah, uh, you know, he, he's probably going to put out a kill for you. And yeah, we were we were stealing a bunch so of drugs. We're not here's what happened. Drugs. Yeah, it's it's ludicrous that that would happen. Um, and in it's just, it's just, it is betrayed by, I think that you, maybe you make an interesting point about the, uh, the nature of communication over the phone. I think that it ultimately is to the detriment of the film though. I agree. I too would agree. Uh, I'm glad that I brought up Harry's piece in unwinnable then, because it seems like we've really like, this has kicked the podcast in a high gear for me. I don't know about y'all. Um, but like, I guess I have no, not much more to say. Um, do we have uh, any last thoughts? I know that I sort of cut everybody short with the unwinnable thing, but did it spur anything for anybody else? Uh, completely unrelated, but one other thing I wanted to get in. Sorry, Jason. Um, I do appreciate. Uh, no, no, movies. not at all. Hey, hey, Cody, you should know yeah? that the more you talk, the less we can use. Actually, that's the nature of website of uh, internet content is like the more you oh. talk, the worse it gets. Right. So, you know, sure. always less, always less. For sure. Well, I'll keep this short. Uh, you have to keep it in, though. I think that's internet rules. But um, yes. I, I, I love, mean, of course, I, I know that... the internet rules. I know the internet rules. <laughs> right. Uh, I'll, I'll show them to you afterward if, if you're confused. Um, but really quick, I love that this uh, this movie's bit of meta text um, for the fact that Burt Lancaster is a hulking person uh, in real life. In one of the climactic meetings with um, every uh, Stevenson and and uh, Marano and Evans and two other guys um stevenson stands up henry does and morano's like look i know you can kick my ass six two burt lancaster but uh please don't um that, that got, is that extremely funny yeah it's the two thugs like like run at burt lancaster and burt lancaster stands up and you can see them sort of shrink and it's like wait is burt lancaster about to beat the shit out of two dudes and it's like Better we movie. just saw him we just saw him in, in brute force and it's like fucking maybe like that dude's a brick shithouse um it's also also metatextually funny that like burt lancaster's character in this has like shoujo anime protagonist syndrome where every single female character falls in love with him 
Uh, and like there, there, there are a bunch of scenes where he's like, oh, gee, I'm just a I'm just a Bruce Springsteen character kid from small town Grassville. Uh, Leona, why me? And she like is clearly just very horned for Burt Lancaster. And it's like, well, I makes sense, I guess. Just another day in the life of Captain Handsome. Well, thank you. Uh, that is definitely a good way to segue into our final segment of the program, uh, which if Harry would help me join, I think we're experiencing a significant amount of lag. So this is going to be really, really fun. Uh, but we have, yes, in the chat, we have noties. Uh, and I would like to introduce our next segment along yes, with my, as would I. With my so, co-host Harry. This Here segment is called <gasps> Cody's, Cody's Noties. <gasps> thank you, gentlemen. Um, <laughs> For that, uh, so I believe this is Barbara Stanwyck's formal introduction to the pod. Shout out to Barbara Stanwyck. Uh, we'll get to know her and her work a little more in the coming weeks. Uh, spoiler alert, uh, though, if you've made it this far in the episode, you deserve that peek behind the curtain. Um, and it's been a while since we last got to talk about uh, Brute Lancaster. Um, these two actors are among the most, uh, I don't know, I would say inform- uninformed opinion, but I, I feel like they're among the most celebrated and best remembered from their time. Uh, they're definitely up there. And there's a lot to take from their respective uh, trajectories. And what better way to smush those career paths together than through a little game I like to call Stanwick or Stancaster? Because whether it's Barbara, Burt, or both, quite frankly, we must stand. Um, what I'm going to do is Holy read shit. off two. He's the uh, fucking best in the biz. Oh, God. Uh, two, I'm going to read two semi-parallel statements, one representing Stanwick and one representing Lancaster, who I'm just going to keep calling Stancaster. Uh, you're listening to this on Zencaster. And what you guys will do is indicate which is the the true statement of the two. Um, it's always going to be one statement or the other. I'm not going to set you up with two true or two false statements uh, at once or anything like that. That is not how I get my kicks, gentlemen. Um, and I know you boys are, are feisty and you... Uh, you love your battle royales and your video games and your calls of duty. So inevitably, I, I figured we'd make this an individual competition, um, which, you know. Kenji Fukusaku's battle royale. I was going to say exactly. we should do it as a group, but uh, capitalism. I know Jason loves survival of the fittest because he's a sick human being. But uh, I'm a sick human being and a eugenicist. So, yes, please bring it on. Yummy, yummy. Um, I will say uh, bar trivia rules do apply here. Uh, in the words of uh, various hosts I've had over the years, use your noodle, not your Google. Uh, let's keep this clean. Um, and we can do this in, uh, let's do reverse alphabetical order by first name this time. So uh, Jason, Harry, and then Aaron, if that sounds okay. Any questions before we get going? Uh, cool. Very cool. All right. <laughs> First off, um, uh, so I'll, I'll read the I'll read the the Stanwick statement first, and then Stancaster. Um, so what we got here: Barbara Stanwyck never won an Oscar for acting, but she did win an honorary Oscar late in her career. And then we got Burt Stancaster was nominated for two Oscars and won one of them. Uh, so down the line, Jason, which one is the true statement? I believe it is the one about uh, Burt Lancaster. All right, um, Harry. Yeah, I was also going to go with that one. I think that's true. Sorry, gotcha. could you and them both. Yeah, definitely. Uh, Barbara Stanwyck never won an ask, uh, Oscar, Oscar for acting, but she did win an honorary Oscar late in her career. Uh, that, that is did she win an Oscar? You better ask her. Uh, the the Barbara <clears throat> Stanwyck one was the true statement. 
All right. Uh, Aaron is off to a great start in this game. That is indeed uh, the correct statement. Uh, Stan Caster was actually nominated for for four Oscars, and he did win one of them. Uh, He was not nominated for previous episode Brute Force, uh, which is uh, a shame, a damn shame, uh, if you ask me. Um, So Aaron, commanding lead uh, with one to zero to zero. Uh, Next up here. Two more statements. Um, first, Stanwyck. By 1944, Barbara Stanwyck had become the highest paid woman in the United States. And then Stancaster. Uh, by 1954, Bert Stancaster had become the highest paid man in the United States. Jason, which one of those is the true statement? Oh, my God. I'm having a hard time believing either of them is true, but I'm going to default to uh, Stanwyck on this one. All right. Stan Wick for Jason. Uh, Harry, who you got? Yeah, I'm also going to have to go with Stan Wick just because of sexism that I find that very believable, to be honest, which sucks. Mm-hmm. That's like, fair. Why, Aaron? Why you go, you're going with Stan Wick as the true one because of sexism? Yeah, it makes sense that she would be the highest paid woman more than it makes sense. Oh, that more than oh, okay. would be. Yes, they're more. Okay, I was thinking, yes, that is actually the correct way. Okay, uh, I'm still, I'm going to go with uh, Lan, I'm going to go with Lan. All right, Stan Caster for Aaron. Uh, Jason and Harry made the correct choice uh, on this one. It is uh, Stan. From what I can tell, Mr. Stan Caster was well off, but never at the top of the heap pay-wise per Wikipedia. It was probably some industrialist who was already making a billion dollars somehow by 1954. That is a good point, yes. I should have thought of that. Also, also, uh, Burt Lancaster like uh, diversified his interests into uh, oil companies. In yeah, 19- like oil magnet so. uh, Burt Lancaster. Um, I believe there will be blood is actually uh, in part based on his life. <laughs> uh, hey, um, you're not wrong. Spoilers. Uh, number three here, uh, and the following we're going to do this a little bit different. The following are two quotes said by former directors about each actor. Um, so same idea here. Pick out the quote that is the authentic one. Uh, so starting with Stanwyck, she only lives for two things, and both of them are work. And then Stancaster, watching him was as frightening as watching a wounded beast trying to break loose. Uh, Jason, which one of those is the real one? I mean, both of them are accurate statements, but I'm going to go with the one that is about Barbara Stanwyck. All right, Harry. Uh, I will too. Can I get bonus points if I correctly guess who that second quote is about? Because I want it uh, to be about Tashiro Mefune so bad. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, bonus points, you little curmudgeon. Uh, we'll go to Aaron <laughs> next. Uh, I'm going to go Lancaster. Just a, just a, we're tied. Shake things up. Go Lancaster. Just All right, fair enough. Uh, yeah, gut feeling more like a butt feeling stanwick was the correct uh pick and I'm harry's on the right. harry's ah. on the right track that stancaster quote was actually spoken by akira kurosawa about the time he watched to share me toho edition uh, yo bro that oh okay. my so, god so, Ten thousand so, so bonus points zero bonus points here <laughs> yeah cop cop cody is uh putting I, putting the, i've already cody. won in my heart in your fart. Number four here. Because when you uh, bet on Tashira Mefune, you never lose. <laughs> well, uh, we still got three more of these uh, questions to go. So let's, you know, not count our Mefunes before they hatch. Um, I regret that. Uh, next up here, um, back to statements here. The Stanwick. Uh, Barbara Stanwick reportedly signed a statement release asking Congress to abolish the House Un-American Activities Committee. Um, and then Stancaster, Bert Stancaster hosted a fundraiser for Martin Luther King Jr. ahead of the historic March on Washington in 1963. So Jason, without Googling, which one of those is the correct statement? 
I, I, I have a hard time believing that anybody who was white in Hollywood was that cool a person for either of these things. So really it's like some of these have been, oh man, those are both really cool and true. I feel like neither of these is true, but uh, I'll say the House on American Activities, uh, or sorry, the Stanwyck one, because probably she had friends who were being blacklisted. I do not think that Burt Lancaster would have been a nice enough person to fundraise for MLK. <laughs> gotcha. All right. That's uh, the most Harry? cynical answer I've ever heard anyone <laughs> say. I mean, I'm I'm yeah, okay. a, a little proud, let's, but let's let's play let's, yeah, play, like... let's play let's play the game. Just play the game. <laughs> Stanwyck uh, for Jason. Who for like, Harry? Holy shit, like, let's unpack that a little bit. He even went out of his way to say that the reason why Stanwyck is probably true is because of her career, how she wanted to get it yes, in with Hollywood. Yeah. I He's making some good points, and I got to go with my, my cynical boy, so I guess I'm going to go with Stanwyck. I, I hope yeah. to God that they're both true. Uh, I want them both to be true. I want to believe. Cody, could you repeat the first one again? Sure. Uh, Barbara Stanwyck reportedly signed a statement oh, release no, it's a trick asking question. Congress to abolish oh, the you... House Un-American Activities Committee. House Un-American or House Un-American? House Un-American. Yeah. Okay. Uh, yeah. She was a conservative and libertarian uh, most of her life. Big objectivist. Fan of Ayn Rand. I'm going to go with uh, Stan Caster. Wait, 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 wait. You, you know that off the top of your head? You know that yes, she's a conservative because I did research and then... for the fucking uh, podcast uh, so recording you're right not now. using your noodle. Yes, she the... wrote letters to Ayn Rand. Oh, the, that's, the... that's very upsetting. <laughs> The disclaimer I failed to mention was that, yeah, I don't know how much research y'all did before coming on the pod. Uh, but yeah, Aaron is uh, correct here. Barbara Stanwyck supported UAC and was a vocal conservative. Um, the the actual, the, the blurb in her Wikipedia page uh, noting that is very upsetting because it lists a whole lot of other, um, actually, I mean, people that we already knew were shitty, like, yeah. this, uh, al- along with other Republicans in Hollywood, like John Wayne and Jimmy Stewart. And I'm like, oh, God. Meanwhile, much. I'm, I'm answering this in, in my head. I I hear I hear like like liberation songs and there are black and uh, red flags waving and I'm thinking about the whole history of intersectional marginalization and how the international those groups all <laughs> yeah stood up for one another and uh, that's deeply disappointing. Jason, I, John Wayne? Uh, I I regret yeah, I regret turn, leading you astray, Harry. No, I I appreciate I appreciate the cynicism. Obviously, it was warranted. John uh, Cain, John Wayne. Wow! Now I'm and I'm uh, just imagining Burt Lancaster like in full dashiki and like banging on a on a on a drum. Burt Lancaster probably did that, yeah. From what I can tell, and we're not going to talk about it a whole uh, actually at all in the rest of this game. But look him up, uh, those of you playing this game, and those of you listening at home. Burt Lancaster seems to be uh, something of a real one. Um, so I don't know if you need some some brain. Uh, like wiping the slate clean on your brain after hearing <laughs> hearing that last question. Just look at pull up his Wikipedia page. He's done a lot of cool stuff. And then maybe watch Apple. Brute Force because that movie kicks ass. Brute Force kicks absolute ass. Uh, Criterion Collection put out a, a Blu-ray upgrade of that movie uh, within the past few months. Um, I hate that I'm a walking plug for Criterion now. Uh, moving on to number five. Uh, for, so for each of these actors for this one, I'm going to list one of the quote unquote trademarks that's listed on their IMDb profiles, and you'll just need to pick out which one is real. Uh, first up, we've got Barbara Stanwyck. Her shapely legs is a uh, trademark, and then Stancaster, his trademark is a killer grin, which he himself called, and I quote, the smile. Jason, which one of those is legit? 
Oh my god! I don't know enough about either of these uh, performers to know to like. That's what makes this, this fun. I, I don't think you see Barbara Stanwyck's legs even one time in this film. I think she's always got her nightgown on, right? And she's always either standing or laying in a position that prevents it. You don't see her feet either. You don't see her feet. I, got- ju- I just wanted to make sure you don't, right? I mean, oh, you, you don't. You Can don't. we confirm? This is gonna this this episode is gonna show up in so many unsavory Google searches now. I'm I googling Harry- it. Barbara Stanwyck. Jason, what this is your answer? This isn't a funny bit because it's too it's too close to being true. Sorry, I'm sorry, everyone. My my answer is uh, that Barbara Stanwyck's shapely legs are not a real element of her IMDb trivia, wiki, whatever page. So you're going for okay. Lancaster. I'm going for Burt Lancaster's thing being the truth, though I did not okay. see him smile even one time in this movie. Oh boy, Harry, you didn't see his feet either. Um, just for the record. Uh, I kill me again. Kill, I think, let me be clear. Kill me dead again for a second time. Uh, Harry, your answer. I think I'll go with the smile as well. Although I'm, I'm loath to keep agreeing with Jason, especially since he led me astray on the previous question. I think, I think All I'm right, going to go with the smile too. Yeah. Sorry to be boring, but that seems there's a lot of detail there. All right. Three stand casters and three incorrect answers. Uh, you made that shit up, Cody. The, that was the authored actual- by Cody. The actual listing for the Stanman, uh, I'm j- three nicknames removed. Uh, his trademark on IMDb, one of them is a killer smile, which he himself called the grin. That is real Fucking... from the IMDb canon. That's okay, but he did have killer smile. Cody, Cody's trickies. Wait, wait like, was, that not, was, that, was that not my answer? Not to litigate, but that was that was my answer. No, be, that's not. No. That wasn't. Everybody, the true everybody one. said Stanwyck's one was the real one. I swapped grin and uh, smile. Uh, okay, yeah, Cody's trickies indeed. Uh, so everybody is tied up uh, at two correct answers apiece. We're going into the final question here. Um, this is, I'm sweating. Holy shit. Me too. Uh, we're going to end on a quote from each actor. That's what these are. They're going to be quotes. You'll tell me which one is legit, uh, um, and that we'll go with that. First up, Barbara Stanwyck, promiscuity usually just a case of mistaken non-entity. And then uh, the standcaster himself, if anyone should have gotten AIDS from an active sex life, it is me. Jason, which one of those is for real? (laughs) Oh, uh, well, we've already established that Burt Lancaster is much, much, much cooler than Barbara Stanwyck ever was. Uh, So I'm going to put all my chips in the Burt Lancaster pile here and say that he indeed thought that he should have had an STD. Awesome. Harry? Oh, it's a tough one. I'm, I'm not going to belabor the point too much, but like that's especially now that we've established that there are tricks in play, because either of these could have been said by any individuals. Could you repeat uh, Barbara Stanwyck's quote for me? Sure. Uh, and by the way, trickies are in the eye of the beholder, uh, but Barbara Stanwyck's quote, uh, promiscuity, usually just a case of mistaken non-entity. Damn, I was I was listening closely for like a, a reference to Anne Rand where she was like, and also the Fountainhead is my favorite book. Um, oh yeah, I just snuck that in. Sure, she did uh, love the Fountainhead. She wrote, yeah, Anne of course Rand she did. She like petitioned to star in that fucking uh, 2011 <laughs> like four hour adaptation of Atlas Shrugged or whatever. Like, uh, kickstarted um, one, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Uh, which, which is funny because you would think that if there was sufficient demand, the free market would have created that, that film. It's kind of funny that they use Kickstarter for that. Anyway, um, I'm going to go with Lancaster's as well. Just down the line with Jason, uh, friends to the end, uh, ride or die. Um, 
compatriots and furious for life. Like a, yeah it's like a decemberist song yeah <laughs> oh um, yeah decemberist come on the pod aaron i here's the thing so we're all tied those two just went for the, the land man um, so he has no reason not to do yeah that's a good well, point no but so i could i could just go i here's a I think, I think it's the lancaster quote but i think if I okay, if I go for it's Stanwyck, game theory. If I go for Stanwick, then I win. If, if it's not, then I lose. Then at least it's more exciting. Also, if I go for Stanwick and I win, then I think Harry has to take uh, his current uh, Twitter display name off and, and change it because he will. But not what about the Tashira Mayfune bonus points? And no, I don't think he. <laughs> those that don't exist, we yeah. don't have to worry about those. Cody cleared that up nice. So I, I think I'm going to go with Stanwick. I think I'm going to lose, but I think I'm going to go with Stanwick just to be a legend, uh, Barbara Stanwick. Just to be a legend, um, perhaps a forgotten one. Stancaster was the the correct one in this case. I knew it. I knew um, it. I knew the the real, like the, well, the real Stanwick quote reportedly is egotism. Usually, just the case of mistaken non-entity. I struggled to find a quote uh, as uh, legendary as the Stanman's. Man, um, that's so a that's, really <laughs> fucking cool quote. Damn, yep. I wish that she was cool because that's right. that's some sick like Buddha shit to say. <laughs> yeah, uh, though that do, that does conclude this exercise. Thank you for indulging that stand session. Um, though I think we know who to stand uh, from here on out, not to speak too boldly. That I do, and I'm going to stand Cody Narvison. Thank you very much for listening to Try Love. Uh, this has been our episode about Sorry, Wrong Number, a 1948 film. You can find it, uh, I'm assuming, streaming multiple places. You can also uh, find a lot of ways to support the Trilon at Trilon.org. Of course, they are closed at the time of this recording for all showings, but hopefully their uh, schedule stays pushed sometime when it's able and safe to be going to movie theaters again. Uh, in the meantime, go to Trilon.org to find ways to support them. They've got a lot of merch. You can become a member of the Trilon Club. I am Trilon Club member number 117. Uh, and I believe we are all members now. Um, oh, we're all members now. And uh, yeah, so find us on Twitter at Trilove Podcast. Find me, your uh, one of your hosts, Jason Daphnis, at Nintendoofus. I've been Cody Narvison, uh, Trilon member number six, uh, I believe. And you can find me on Twitter at Cody underscore BH. Um, I'm Harry. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Shiitake Harry. Uh, if you call me, I will say sorry, wrong number, because I hate to talk on the phone. So don't call me, I guess. Um, thanks for listening. Bye. Uh, yeah, I'm Aaron. Uh, as I mentioned, I am taking a social media break, uh, but you can find me catching up on the Barbara Stanwyck Sorry Wrong Number Cinematic Universe watching the 2014 movie Jack Ryan Shadow Recruit, which is, as mentioned, directed by Kenneth Branagh. Which I should say, uh, I don't share my sister's opinion on Kenneth Branagh. Um, I think he's directed a lot of good stuff. His adaptation of uh, Shakespeare and Love is all right. Uh, His adaptation of Hamlet is exceptional. I think it's maybe one of the best filmed Hamlet. Um, I really like Much Ado About Nothing. Um, Maybe that one's a little bit more controversial, but they cast Keanu Reeves, so you can't really not love it. You know, I'm just going to say it's a bad movie, but Thor has some good bits. I like the fish out of water bits. I think they're good. I think the rest of that movie's ass. Yeah, the, the coffee gag is probably one of the funnier moments in a Marvel movie, I think. Yeah, I, th- I think the fact that they, they have a movie directed by... Ke- like, I, know, I respect Kenneth Branagh just being like, I've done Shakespeare for years now. Right. I'm just going to get money. I respect it. Uh, go get your bag, dude, you know? Anyway. Get it.
he's like he's like one of those British actors who like they have a totally different um perspective on their work where they'll they'll just do anything because really what they want to do is just like like do stage performances in London or wherever at the Globe Theater and so they'll just take any money that they can get which is why you see like the same four extremely famous British actors in like a hundred movies a year because they just do that shit because it's not really what they're interested in anyway which is like maybe the best way to like take a movie career so more more power to them I heard that uh I heard that uh 2020's Artemis Fowl was a delightful watch uh I have not I forgot that he direct to be fair I heard I heard that that was cut apart in editing that like they did like 12 different like versions of that movie and then like stuck them together like Frankenstein. Yeah. Speaking um, of cut apart in editing, uh, this bit uh, will probably be, you don't like this bit. Editing. This is just sort of like, I, uh, you know, not chat. Let's, just, let's fucking do we're it. Riffing, baby. Look at us. We're, this is I, like bebop musicians. I think, I think if you have, if you take a look at his recent filmography, at, or at least as an actor, uh, you know, like, yeah, you do have Jack Ryan Shadow Recruit, which he also acted in. You got Dunkirk, though. Dunkirk's great. You know, I've heard he's, kind of, he's very good in Dunkirk. Yeah, he's in a lot of he's in a lot of good movies. I think he doesn't have Charlie on the pod. Well, I think he's kind of an he's kind of an ass in real life, right? I think that contributes to a lot of his. Um, he's a Shakespearean actor, of course. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah. Uh, my, uh, my, my good friend, Peter, uh, who is love Peter shout out to Peter. Come on the pod. Come on the pod. Uh, actually he yeah, knows a lot about movies. Uh, he, he, uh, he, lo- he knows very, very much about movies. Yes. Yeah. He, uh, he used to joke that, uh, Kenneth Branagh had like a, just an old dusty King Lear script that he was just waiting until he was like, old enough. Sure. He's just going to like unlock a giant vault and like turn this giant, like wheel in order to open like creak it apart and then just like a giant vault with one piece of paper in the center that just like well that's the classic thing right is that uh young men play hamlet middle-aged men play Macbeth, and old men play king lear right and he's Uh, almost an old man yeah i don't think he ever played Macbeth. uh no i don't think so uh we didn't do an episode on throne of blood did we no well, Throne of Blood's real good, uh, and it's an adaptation of Macbeth. Maybe so, that's why and, he didn't do it. He respects Throne of Blood, too. Sure. Probably. That's probably yeah. what it was. He was like, I can't beat Toshiro-san. Yeah. Should we stop talking so that Cody can do his bit? <laughs> yeah, I, I think that's good. Uh, talk All right. If you've made it this far, congratulations. You are over an hour and a half into uh, a podcast episode about the movie Sorry, Wrong Number, starring Barbara Stanwyck and Burt Lancaster. Here's a little something extra. In the tangled networks of a great city, the telephone is the unseen link between a million lives. It is the servant of our common needs, the confidant of our inmost secrets. Life and happiness wait upon its ring and horror, and loneliness, and death.